We have a breaking news story to tell you about. A plane has just crashed into the World Trade Center. Today, we've had a national tragedy. Christian, it's under siege. Study after study shows Christianity is not the force it once was. But we are going to protect Christianity. Even before COVID, a growing number of Americans were moving away from organized religions. The group called Religious Nuns has steadily grown. Hey there, this is Jonathan Stormont. I am a preacher in Little Rock. I've been in ministry for the last 20 years in several different great churches. And I'm starting a new podcast today called Bonafide, which is the Latin word for good faith, because I'm trying to have good faith conversations with people who don't have faith, or at least not faith like they used to. When uh, September 11th happened, I was a student at a small college in Arkansas. When the two planes flew into the World Trade Center, my parents, who were from a small town in Arkansas as well, were just positive that the next target of Al-Qaeda was going to be Searcy, Arkansas. But, you know, it wasn't. We lived under a shroud of fear for a few weeks. And you may remember, if you were alive back then, that churches were packed for the next few weeks. But something happened on 9-11. Something started changing. And over the past couple of decades in my work as a pastor, I've seen this change worked out profoundly with people that I care about. There was this realization that happened in America and in the West that sometimes religion causes people to do great harm, which is undeniably true. And because of that and because of the rise of like the new atheist and, and other people who were making the case that religion was bad for the world, something began to happen that we're just now seeing come to more fruition. The last few years, the fastest growing religion in America are nuns or people who don't identify as any kind of religion. These people, for the most part, aren't atheists. Maybe they identify as atheists. Maybe they identify as agnostic or whatever. But they're my friends. And for the last 20 years, I've been trying to understand these men and women that I know and care about and who care about me. And so this is a podcast having conversations with me as a Christian pastor who's had my own doubts with my brothers and sisters who used to be Christian, were raised in the Christian faith, and no longer are. For the past 10 years, I have been working with this resource written by a Canadian philosopher, Charles Taylor, called A Secular Age. He wrote a very dense academic philosophical book called A Secular Age that I don't recommend unless you're into that kind of thing, but it's incredibly helpful for understanding our present reality that we're dealing with. And I engage a lot of his explanation of the world in these conversations with my friends. And by the way, these are truly my friends. They're friends that I graduated college or grad school with. They've worked in ministry. Some of them have been missionaries in a foreign field. And for a variety of different reasons, they no longer found it plausible to consider that God raised Jesus from the dead. So I want to have a conversation with them. For the next few months during the summertime while people are driving, I'm going to release once a week the first season of Bonafide, the conversations that I've had with my friends over the past few weeks and months, and let 
people. I hope this to be a resource for building bridges between believers and people who no longer consider themselves believers. I hope it might be a resource for parents who are trying to raise their kids in the Christian faith in a secular age, and maybe for some churches. Having said that, I did not ask my non-believing friends to ask or talk like they were believing. So there's a lot of not churchy words in here. I would consider uh, not listening to this around small children um, because I think religious people don't need to hide behind stained glass sensibilities. So I didn't want to do that with my friends. I would... I want you to op- listen to this, hopefully, with an open heart and an open mind as you consider these people who were raised up in our pews and singing our hymns, and try to open your heart to them. To do this introductory episode, I've asked my preaching buddy, Luke Norsworthy, one of my great friends, to help interview me explaining what my experience has been like doing these eight or nine podcasts over the past few months. Luke has a great podcast of his own called Newsworthy with Norsworthy. He's a preacher in Austin, Texas, and this is a really fun conversation as I try to explain um, a little bit of what Charles Taylor is doing in a secular age and how people, even who are secular non-believers, might be more believing than they think. I hope you enjoy and check in next week for the first interview in this new podcast, Bonfire. Grace and peace. All right, friends, welcome back to the... Get ready for even more awesome. Why is it even more awesome? Because this is also the first one of my own podcast. The I know you're doing... Yeah, let me... Yeah. Okay, okay. You just made it awkward at the very beginning. <laughs> I'm, but I'm just saying, it's even more awesome for the people that are... If, they're, if people are looking for a new podcast and to convert from newsworthy... To the to something else, the even more awesome would be this is is yours. So yes, okay. So then, whenever it's actually your podcast, I should start and jump in with this awkward intrusion. Get ready for some hillbilly. Like I don't know what do you what what is your thing going to be, um, Jonathan? Let me tell you something. I've been trying to process this. The last three times we've tried to get together, I feel like the Lord has intervened. You came to Austin. My dad has little heart attack. I have to leave, go to Abilene. My dad's okay now. Thanks for asking him. Um, we're supposed to be together. Pepperdine, your father-in-law has a heart attack. He's doing better now, right? Yeah, he's he's fine. Okay, he's fine now. But you leave California before Not I even see you. You're, you're there. Back, yeah. You're gone before I even get there. Two times. Now this time, I get to my office this morning. Power goes out. It's off for like two hours. No electricity in the office. And I'm starting to think... God is trying to protect me from whatever harm my theology and my mind would experience from talking to you. Or it could be the dark forces that have surrounded your life are trying to like keep light away. Have you considered that? Mm, no. It doesn't I, sound like God to give people heart attacks. Yeah. I mean, oh, huh. I, mean I don't know if you read the book of Acts, but like there's a guy <laughs> named Eutychus. Who was? No, oh, go with Ananias and Sapphira, not Eutychus. Eutychus falls what? from a thing. Well, if you'd have fallen three stories, Eutychus too, right? Like, there's your joke. <laughs> I know, I love, I love <laughs> that joke. Yeah, I've stolen that one from you. That's yeah, that's good. Yeah, so I mean, God does, I guess, technically do that. Like the Ananias and Sapphira story is still one of the hardest ones for me to put 
in like my nice little ideological framework for the New Testament, who God is. So I, I just pretend like that one didn't happen. <laughs> that's good. That's good. I think that's a good policy. Just put <laughs> out what you don't like. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of putting God in this ni- nice little neat box that I've constructed for God, I'll just, um, yeah, I'll just get rid of that story so I can keep God in this box I have for him. Um, okay. Let me tell you my listeners a story. A few years ago, Jonathan and I were diligently co-writing a sermon series about Christians making the best atheists. So much so that we are willing to fly all the way around the world just so that we could get the best homiletical fusion to create the best homiletical experience that we could serve our churches with together. It it just so happened that it involved us going to Greece. So, but we did that. In the heat of the summer. It, okay, yes. So, you know, very much like the Israelites making bricks without straw. Like, it's just like that. So we're working on the series, and I thought the series was about, okay, we're going to talk about these specific gods. We're functionally talking about idolatry and how these different idols and idolatry present. But you kept interrupting my great sermon series because you kept wanting to talk about the nuns. And it annoyed me. I was like, Jonathan, we're here. This is what we decided to do. But you can't stop talking about the nuns. You've always had this passion for talking about this group of people. Now, I want to ask you why that is. But first, Let's work on a working definition of what a nun is that's not the Catholic version of, you know, nuns. Yeah, so nuns are the people who check on the U.S. Census not affiliated with any religion. I didn't come up with that kind of moniker, but that's the one that people talk about all the time. And they're as distinct from each other as Christian denominations are. Because they're basically post-Christians. Most of them are post-Christians in America in some form or another. And they're post a lot of different kinds of Christianity. So, you know, a a Catholic nun, as in the sense of not affiliated, is going to be reacting to different things in Christianity than like a Methodist nun or, you know, Um, They break a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, They tend to be um, white, male, uh, middle class, and up. But, I mean, there's all kinds of outliers to that, but that that generally is true, and left-leaning politically. But the majority of them had a religious experience before. They they were probably grew up in a Christian tradition, or they had some sort of connection to a Christian tradition, and now they're not? Or is it just more expansive than just that? Yeah, they um, a, a lot of them have uh, deconstructed a fundamentalist faith and um, found that there was not compelling reasons to keep any kind of faith. A lot of them found that it just wasn't wasn't their thing. I mean, so they're not for the most part angry. Uh, actually, I find the nuns who are angry to be the most um, open to considering faith again Mm -hmm. because they care enough about it. But for the most part, they're largely apathetic, um, but they're my friends. And I I guess the reason I care about it is because uh, when I was like 23, some of my best friends in the world, friends that I had graduated Harding with, uh, right and left start deconverting. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to argue with me. Um. And I, you know, for the longest time I tried to convert them, and then I just 
the last 15 years, I've just been trying to understand mm-hmm. like what is going on and why is this like widespread phenomenon happening? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we're going to get more into why you think that is and the things that are impacting that. But just so we're on the same page, the, the nuns are people who would now check. We're not a part of any religious grouping cat. The only categorization that we feel comfortable with is saying that we're not a part of one. Right. And this can include those who grew up religious, also can include those who don't, but for the most part, they did. Um, this is, there's a couple of groups that are probably in this big stream, but like you said, to say that they're a monolith is reductionistic of the right. actual human experiences that are represented in here. And there's a lot of those. That's right. But part of these are like those, you know, the number that many church people have heard where 80% of people who grew up in church leave and disconnect from church when they turn 18. I grew yeah. up in church, I go to college, I get rid of church. Now, some of these are going to come back when they have kids, but the nuns are those who never came back when they get married and have kids. We've also That's heard right. about groups that are deconstructing. And there's many who deconstruct, and what merges on the other side is like a newer, more vibrant, beautiful, new iteration of what faith is. They're just as committed to the way of Jesus, they're just as committed to God. Right. But there are also those who deconstruct, and it just disappears. There's nothing left. That's also the nuns. Right. What other like backstory do you think we want to put out there just so we have some um, understanding uh, of the group? So think about, think about somebody who was raised in a nominal Christian home in the sense of like Christmas and Easter, and they just never really got it. They saw like it seemed like more of a cultural practice, um, and church used to be a thing that people would go to to like network or maybe meet a spouse but now you know so those yeah. are those would also check none but they would be and they'd still be post-christian in the sense that the values that they inherited just in the air of you know western civilization are you know you should take care of the poor the strong should watch out for the weak um those kind of things would be it's not pre-christian and it's not non-Christian, it's post-Christian. So they're still drafting off the fumes of the imagination of Christianity, but they wouldn't, they would not even necessarily be self-aware of that. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking there are people that break, in my mind right now, there are two different categories of nuns that I am trying okay. to like talk to. And that would be the people who are like, um, they've got, they went to college, they've got their degree, um, they're pretty educated, they're literate, they're intelligent, and faith just feels too heavy for them. Um, and then do, the do, other one... Okay, before we get to the second one, faith just seems too heavy for them. Flesh that out a yeah. little more. Well, okay, so like theodicy and suffering and, okay. you know, whenever, you know, they can't make sense of God and... Uh, they don't can't can't they haven't experienced God they haven't heard from God, and um, honestly, there's you know the kind of doubt that is is it true and there's the kind of doubt is it worth it and those kind of doubts mingle together. Okay. And so those those are the people that I graduated school with, um, and then the other kind are the people who did not go to college, are not super educated and. Um, but they're, you know, it's just, it's, and those are the people that I, I tend to spend a lot of my time with, but the other group is the people I spend a lot of time uh, trying to understand and talk to, okay. as far as, like, why they walked away and that kind of stuff, and what I did mostly with this podcast. 
So the the first group, um, you divided with education. Your educational line seems to be the, the, the dividing factor here. That first group is the one that, I'll be honest, like I, I love being able to be a friend to someone going through that because I can commiserate with that. A lot of the questions, yeah. the questions about theodicy, you know, where's God in prayer? Sure. How do you understand suffering? Th- those sort of things, like those are really near and dear to my heart. And to be honest, like that's the first book I wrote because that was my experience. And so when I get opportunities to have conversations with people in those moments, like I just come alive because that's what I, I commiserate yeah. with because it's my, it's my experience as well. The, the second group, maybe help me see more about what's the difference. Cause I would hate to say like the non-educated people don't have intellectual questions or that they, yeah, they, they, but, and they're, they're not, it's not that they don't have intellectual questions. Um, okay. I'm trying to think of the Bible study that I had during COVID with like 20 young adults and none of them went to church. Your and, Gen- Genesis group, a lot of yeah, Genesis Genesis group. Yeah. A lot of Genesis group. Yeah, we went through the book of Genesis. Yeah. And um, those people were like, you know, they cuss like sailors, drank like fish. Um, Wait, are they but grad also, students? No, they weren't, they weren't grad students. <laughs> they were, although they had a lot of behaviors like them. Okay. They, um, but they, they had come to the end of the modern secular versions of happiness so like they slept around a lot and mm-hmm. and sex was no longer like even special in fact it's it it was ruining friendships and it was um you know they they had come to the end of that and they they were you know worldwide crisis was making them ask questions that they hadn't asked before like is there more um, so it's not that they're deconstructing; it's that they had never really constructed something in the first place. Whereas the um, the first group, the right, what you're calling the educated group, they're going to have something constructed, and right. that doesn't work anymore. But the second group maybe didn't have anything constructed at all. That's right. So the the first group deconstructs like an eighth grade version of Christianity, and they think they're walking away from the whole thing, and it's like that's anyway. <laughs> no, you got to finish that thought. I mean, that's not it's okay. The the actual global historic Christian faith is not this Sunday school faith that you've got. Those are, you know, those are fine answers for when you're you okay. know, fourteen year old. But it's not it's yeah. not the robust Christian faith that Thomas Aquinas or Augustine would have. You know, no, no, no. That's real. That's definitely real. Um, I, I wouldn't call someone's faith an eighth grade faith just because I'm a more Christ-like person than you. But what I would say sure, sure. is what we often that find – <laughs> that's what they all say, um, especially when I tell them to say that. Uh, but what we do see is there are a lot of people who haven't been introduced to like a, a bigger and more robust uh, like catalog of Christianity that they can access. And so they have some answers that have worked for many people, but for them it doesn't work. And now all of a sudden they think those answers are the totality of answers that are available. And I think that's probably why I love it is to have those conversations. Go, hey, here are people that have helped me. And here's some other questions that you can even ask that are even better than ones that you're asking uh, that connect you to a bigger cloud of witnesses that can point you forward. So that's group number one. Group number two, though, you're saying they're not having those questions. It's more... I still don't think I fully understand exactly the second group, though. Yeah, you don't probably because um, you don't rub shoulders with them that much because they're not in your churches. Um, but they, you know, they 
they're the people outside of church who who know like Moses's name. Um, maybe they know like the story of David and Bathsheba, just real cultural stuff, but they haven't connected that to any part of their life. They have deep spiritual hunger, but because church seems to them like this, you know, foreign kind of cultural thing, they would never connect that with that. Like huh. they're going to okay. get married at the Justice of the Peace. They're going to, you know, do funerals that play Metallica and, you know, or where I live, um, Garth Brooks. Vince Gill songs. Yeah, Garth Brooks or Vince Gill songs at funerals. Um, I, I just want you to know, I've been at weddings that Vince Gill has not only had his music play, but actually been there singing. So I feel like I do rush uh-uh. Yeah. Wow. Keith Trimble, my roommate from college, married, anyway, yeah, married a music person from Nashville. Amy wow. Grant's manager. That? Yeah. So, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, my my grandma has a crush on Vince Gill. So <laughs> anyway, whatever. Okay, I, I I think I actually am getting this this group more where it's um, yeah, um, like I feel like this is more like my gym friends, where yeah, that's right, that's yeah. right, that's who that would be. So the thing I've been trying to understand over the past fifteen years is why. And it's that Charles Taylor book, which you've heard me talk about a lot, this this one right here. And in every podcast, I reference it because I'm trying to work out this, like, super intellectual thing that is with, with real conversations with people. And that is, why is it possible? 500 years ago, it would not have been possible for someone to not believe in God. They made it a statue in Venice for a guy who didn't believe in God 500 years ago because... It, the, the his generation's a, only atheist. That's what it says on the statue. Was it like a, um, a celebratory thing, or is this a? It was like def- a he stood against the wind kind of hmm. thing. And now it's not only possible; it's very likely if you live in the West and you're of European descent that you will feel that. And so the question, like a lot of times, and this is the conversation I have in almost every podcast. The story people will tell when they deconvert is a subtraction story, which is, you know, we used to, people used to believe in fairies and dragons and elves and God. And then we um, started realizing the world wasn't that way and we left all that behind and God is one of those things. But Charles Taylor says, no, that's not true. That's that is um, an enchantment or a charm. It's a certain way of looking at the world um, that gives another religion priority that sneaks in as a non-religious. Hmm. And it's a whole set of commitments. Um, it largely hides behind the guise of science, but it's capital S, scientism. It's influenced by mobility, uh, how much we have moved around and are untethered and it's also influenced by tons of philosophy that has said over the last few hundred years that what is happening inside of me is more important than any external reality so we have become like these buffered selves so let me tell you this story just really quickly um, because i'm not telling this in any of the podcast 500 years ago, we would have been at like secular zero. That's what he calls it, Charles Taylor. And secular zero is like a fully enchanted world. There's no place where God is not. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like Handmaid's Tale almost. No idea what that is. Okay. 
some of your listeners are more culturally sophisticated. They'll get that. But it's um, like it's just a, an enchanted world. So okay. 500 years ago, if the church is struggling, they don't think we need to bring in a, a great new young pastor. They think we need to bring in the bones of Peter. Or and so the, enchanted, another way to say that would be there is a like a higher view of the miraculous of the course. Uh, well, and, and like it's not just good. It's also like evil spirits, bad, like you're open to all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, over so then. So, so like one, this group, like powers and principalities that Paul talks about, sure. like this isn't them having to par- like translate that or water. Like they really. They know. Yeah, they experience it. Okay. And it's not that they they are making this up in their mind. It's like they really experience it. Like there are all these kind of um, strange stories that have been like um, they pass like the intellectuals of the day's high bar of like Blaise Pascal, who is no slouch, genius. His niece got healed and was verified by three different like physicians that she had this condition and she didn't have it after this miraculous moment where she was touched by the crown of thorns hmm. um, that was visiting, a, a relic that was visiting. And so these things were really happening. Um, and then Secular One, and this is kind of the difference between the subtraction story. Secular One comes along when Protestants and Catholics in Europe want to start trading with one another. And in order to do that, because it was so, the tensions were so high, they had to say, okay, let's set God and religion aside so we can just talk about this economic transaction. Well, when they did that, that was a huge religious shift. All of a sudden, there is a place where God is not. And you're doing that for all the reasons that are understandable. Um, but like when England started to trade with India a hundred years ago, when they came in and were like, "Could you just set that uh, your what British people called Hinduism aside so we can trade?" They were like, "Set it aside. What? How do you how do you set aside God?" And um, that's historian Tom Holland's take in Dominion that the idea that you could set God aside for a certain task is a huge novel religious innovation that is about three, 350 years old. And so you're saying that's what you call secular, or what you call secularism one? Secular, hum- secular one, yeah. So secularism one is that, and it, it's under the guise of manners and politeness. Okay. And so even today, there are certain things if you sit down on an airplane, you're not supposed to talk about, right? Like politics, religion, and sex, um, or money. Actually, sex you can talk about now. Politics, religion, and money um, under the guise of politics and manners. That's – or under the guise of manners. That's secular one. So this is a new invention for humanity that we can put this aside so that we can do deal with something that's economic in front of us that we need for society. So that's secular one. What What is number two? Secular two is when once everybody has done that, then – there, it, it goes from this thing being external to internal and a choice. So Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other, all of a sudden unleashes this secular too, which is what is inside of me is more important than the external realities. And, and so that gets chipped away at with, um, you know, like 
the I think I told you this the other day, but if you were to ask a person about communion 500 years ago, they would if you were to tell them that your favorite part of church is communion, they they would think you were strange because it would be like a neighbor telling you, and this is Andrew Root's metaphor, not mine. It would be like a, a neighbor telling you that they're getting their appendix out tomorrow and they love it when the doctor cuts them open and roots around in there. That's what it would have felt like because when you were taking communion, it wasn't just bread. It was a miracle. People used to, the biggest problem churches had 500 years ago was communions being stolen by witches who would use it for their spells and mispronounce hocus corpus and say hocus pocus or um, sick parents of sick kids who were trying to give their kids the body of Christ to heal them or farmers who were trying to give it to their sick pig or sprinkle it on their crops um, because it wasn't what you felt it was what it was so this is part of this like enchanted view that it's not just bread that there's something transcendent that's here it's not a snack that is a symbol it is a meal that is a miracle Mm-hmm. And um, Protestant Reformation comes along and, you know, at the same rise of science starts disenchanting everything. So you have these huge arguments where we're trying to put scientific labels on what happens at this this mysterious sacramental moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that gets out of hand with this outbreak of, you know, every single kind of issue inside of my conscience is a new kind of religious tradition. Um, Churches of Christ are experts in this, in the sense of, like, we're not good at uh, growing churches. We're good at growing numbers of churches because we split over everything Mm -hmm. because our religious... And all the philosophy I'm reading right now is saying like this the sexual revolution and the the sexual kind of identity fragmentation of like even gender dysphoria I feel on the inside like it doesn't match the outside this is all tied to secular too and what's inside of me is more important than what's outside of me so it's and I'm not trying to comment on the sexual identity stuff I'm trying to say this is 500 years of philosophy that has picked up a head of steam and has created something so when we're talking about the nuns you're saying if we we chase this upstream we see the way that culture has shifted from the basic idea that we can set aside religion so that we can handle commerce or the idea that these transcendent things don't actually have transcendence imbued within them but they are just very material and so that's right the long-term gain is flattening of the world yeah and so this is this echoes some of the conversations that richard beck was having right. in um, Magic Eels. Honey Magic Eels. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's the same idea of when we... It is. When we remove the sacred, all of a sudden the secular over overcomes everything. And Secular is, is a Latin word for temper, temporal. So it means you're just paying attention to the immediate and the physical. Um, yeah. And, yeah. So, and Beck's point is genius here. It's an attention blindness issue. Mm-hmm. It's not that God isn't present everywhere. It's that we have trained our mind to only be looking for what we want to see. Yeah. Um, yeah. Secular three is actually, I think, the most interesting. Oh, there's more? How many are there? How many seculars are just there? Just three. Okay. Just three. I wasn't ready. I thought it was just two. I, I, did, I thought we were done with that. 
Well, Secular 3 is really helpful to me because it explains me. Um, it's the cross pressure that everyone feels in a secular age. Cross pressure. So if you're, if you're not a believer, if, if your belief system is that you have no belief system, that's fine. But you're going to get crossed up. Like there's going to be the moment when you hold your first child or you hear a, a symphony and your heart swells mm -hmm. and you think you accidentally believe for a moment hmm. and you don't know what to do with that. Or you're someone like us, you're a pastor and you know, you, you experience God from time to time. You have these religious transcendent experiences and then you do a funeral of a child and you think, what if it's something we just made up to make us be able to deal with death? Mm -hmm. um, everybody gets crossed up. And so you have to kind of train yourself to do what Charles Taylor says, either acknowledge that I have a closed take, like when, when those moments of, of updraft. What's happen. a closed – what do you mean closed take? So he says basically it's how you interpret the world. Okay. And you have to you have to just acknowledge this is how I interpret the world. So you you know you get on the car and and there's you know you got through a hard day and you turn on the radio and it's a song that played at your high school when you know it's just this magical moment and what do you do with that? Gotcha. If you have a close take, you say, "Ah, uh, wow, that's that's odd, that's strange," and move on. Okay. But if you if you have an open take, you're like, "Wow." Maybe there is something out there. Okay, so maybe you, this is all about. What does that mean? You're asking. What does that mean? Yeah. Okay, so uh, Jonathan, you recorded this first season already, and you've sent me uh, some of the podcasts, and I've got a couple clips from this, and I actually want to play one of these, which I think speaks directly to what we're talking about here, where someone has this moment of transcendence, they have this spiritual encounter, but in some ways, because they are they've deconstructed, deconverted, whatever you want to say, there are none at this point that they don't have a framework to put this in context of what they're actually experiencing. So their experience do not match their ideological framework for the world. Uh, this guy, he's at his father's uh, deathbed. That's the story I'm going to play for you. Um, I don't want to say his name, but can you give any, any more details we need yeah, to know about this guy? He's fine with, he's fine with his name. He's a good dude. Um, his name's John. He was a youth minister for eight years, and I knew him as a youth minister. I love this guy. Still love this guy. Um, he worked in Canada, and in his last two years, he didn't believe in God, and it was super hard for him. And one of the most courageous things he did was, like, quit and find a new line of work, and he just a really difficult time. He talks about it very candidly in the podcast. But the moment that was the most profound for me is the moment that you're going to play when his father is dying, and his father had tried really hard to talk him back into Christianity. Okay. And anyway, I think it's all set up. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's check this out. You know, luckily, you know, things with my dad ended beautifully, and I and I want to share this just because um, I, I think it's worth sharing. Like, I, um, there, there's parts there's parts of the church and the faith that that, that I still really. Um, you know, respect and, 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 and love. And, and when my dad was, was, uh, was passing, you know, I, I got a call. Uh, this was about five years ago when I got a call while I was at work in, in Vancouver Island for my mom saying, you know, he's in the hospital. It doesn't look good. Um, you know, um, I called my brother, Alan, who was, who was a minister in the South. 
and, and asked him and, and he said, yeah, you better come down. So I flew down on a Thursday morning, got there a Thursday night. Dad was already unconscious. He had been struggling with heart issues for many years. Um, and um, I get there and, and, and you know, I, I didn't have any final words with him because he was already – he was already in that state. And, and while I was there, all of a sudden, all these people just showed up kind of out, out of nowhere. And before I knew it, um, they were singing um, his favorite gospel songs um, surrounding him. And, and I was a mess. You know, here I was uh, you know, certified agnostic, certified like I don't see things like this anymore. But, but you know, on a, on a Thursday night you know, teenagers and young adults and adults had, had given up their night to gather around a man and and sing him his favorite songs. And I remember taking that in and thinking like, you know, I probably wouldn't have left this. Uh, you know, I, I I think maybe this is actually what, what Jesus had in mind. Because you oh know what, there was, nobody, there was nobody saying at this moment, um, you know, you know, where do you think he's going to go when he dies? Like, do, are we sure he's going to, you know, there was no dogmatics, you know, it was like, you know, did he get all his fares in order or, you know, wait a second. Is that a girl that started that song? Yeah. I, th I think that's, I think it's a beautiful uh, story. That's very genuine and human for him to share that. Yeah. I think he also speaks to an experience that a, a lot of people have where what you hear him saying is like, there's this dogma uh, this debate over, right. you know, can a woman start this prayer or not? Uh, some of the stuff that, that seems to him and to, to, to many people like a rather trivial thing. But what he doesn't want to distance himself from is, wow, there's something in the right. power of this group of people together, the, the power of the liturgy that they share, the language that they share. Um, and, and most of all, it's it's love. Like you just, you see love incarnate in a moment like that. And you go, there is something here that I want, but everything I want to get rid of doesn't feel like this. This doesn't feel transcendent that I'm getting rid of, but this right here, it's sacred. It, and that was one of my favorite moments. I've, I've done this like eight different conversations. The podcast is called Bonafide, um, good, which is Latin for good faith, is in good faith conversations. Um, and that was one of my favorite moments. John is a wonderful guy. Uh, I, I tell you what this did for me. These People that are nuns have been my friends for 15-plus years, but it gave me more empathy for them in the sense that, like, a lot of these people didn't want this. Mm -hmm. Like, it was something that almost happened to them instead of happened, you know, with their yeah. will. Yeah, yeah. And I, I appreciate that a lot, and I, I'm trying to explain and understand some of that with this podcast. No, it's good. Uh, we'll play another clip in just a second um, where, where you see more about what you just described. But w what I hear there is, in some ways, uh, this is Tom Wright's uh, metaphor from, I think it's simply Christian, where he talks about like this, this spring of water that we've tried to like keep underground, but like this water is going to burst through. And he talks about these four pillars, these, these signposts that are just bursting through. And no matter what we do to try to push them away, that they still come through. And one of those is spirituality, which as I understand it, is just like the sense that there is more than just the material that, that our secular one, two and three world can't give language to. Like there's just something more right. than just what you find under a microscope. And 
I think there's like the power of, of those experiences are what draws people to God. And I think for some of us, especially me, like I've wanted to argue people back in and especially when I was younger, think, well, if I just put together this great argument or, or, you know, just logically lay this out for you, but those, those feel pretty inept, but like the power of those moments, I feel like that's something that, um, we, we, we transition our evangelism from arguing about to testifying to. And that testifi- is true. Yeah. Testifying to true. what that was. Yeah. Yeah, that, I, th- I like that. I like that a lot because testifying too is bearing witness, right? Yeah, yeah. Witness is about attention. Like I, I believe, you know, Richard Beck is a great example of this: practicing your way back toward faith in God. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. I think attention and where you choose to direct your attention is a way forward. And um, yeah, so I, I like that. And again. Nuns are not a monolith, and so, but the ones who have like lost their faith because they believed in, you know, capital S science um, and all the forms that that takes. Uh, I think attention and and paying attention is the way forward for them because yeah. you know Christianity says there's two, the two books of Revelation are the Bible and creation, and so yeah. It's the difference between, like, looking at creation and looking at creation through the lens of science is the difference between looking in a lover's eyes and an ophthalmologist looking in eyes. Hmm. It's Does that make sense? You're going to see very different things looking at the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's kind of what I, I hope to cultivate with my friendship with my yeah, unbelieving no. friends. Yeah, no, moving – moving away from arguing to something where it's pointing instead of arguing. Um, And and I think there's another clip that I'm going to play right now that I think it it creates a lot of compassion as you hear Mm -hmm. uh, this gentleman, uh, very educated person. I think we want to keep this person's name uh, under wraps for... He he goes by Joel. Yeah, he goes by Joel. Okay, we're going to call him Joel Joel, after Osteen. Joel and I went to... (laughs) Joel, I call him acapella atheist in this because he doesn't believe in God, but he loves acapella music. He'd be so disappointed in you, Luke. <laughs> I, I don't even know what that means. I sing acapella songs well, every week, but sure. <clears throat> um, but you really watered down the faith. You've added a guitar, but Joel, he <laughs> go ahead. Well, I just go think ahead, it's, Luke. you literally have people in the podcast who walked away from faith. And they listen to your preaching the majority of their adult lifetime. So I feel like you throwing <laughs> stones when you literally have a podcast about people and your friends that have left faith and their connection to faith is is you. Anyway, I, I think I, I think it was because I was tangentially tied to this other podcast. Sure, sure. Okay, <laughs> uh, l- let's go back to the uh, heartfelt comments by our friend Joel. Makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, I've actually thought. You know, if if I am wrong here, and I, I'm pretty sure I'm not, but if I'm wrong here, and there actually is a God, and I go and stand for, before Him, you know, whenever the New Testament doesn't agree exactly when that will be, <laughs> um, but but whenever I do, if, if I do, I'm going to tell Him I I did I did the best I could with this brain you gave me and with the knowledge that I I had of the world. I did the I made the best decision I possibly could. Yeah. So um, I've yeah. often thought that's that's what I'll say. I'm doing the best I could with the brain that I have, 
And I think for some of us, you go, well, I, it, this is th- the first group of nuns. You can't nuns. ask more of that. Yeah. No, you can't. Like, if, if you got these questions and they're so overwhelming, part of what we we see in the witness of Scripture is that God is big enough to handle our questions. Mm-hmm. But we don't always get the answers that we want to those questions. Like, you, you see that God is willing to to hear the questions. You know, how long, O Lord, must we wait? God's willing to hear Job's questions. God's willing to hear and negotiate with many of the patriarchs of faith that we see in Judaism. But sometimes the answers we get, like, are they're not enough. Like they, they feel like they're right. we, we deserve or we 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 require more. And so you hear a guy like this who's saying, like, honestly, I'm I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not trying to, but it just doesn't make sense with the brain that I have. Yeah, that's right. And so Joel and I have a a great friendship, and we have talked before and after that podcast. And um, I would say. He has a closed pen, but is working towards an open take. Um, like, hmm. you know, does that make sense? What, what do you think an open take would look like? Um, I think an open take is something like anything is possible. And, um, you know, it, it is – so the language of a secular age that I found helpful is we cr- we've created over the last few hundred years a buffered self – which means these realities are out there. The realities of, you know, spiritual forces that are both good and evil um, are not foreign to the developing world. Mm-hmm. Like, in fact, if a lot of times when cultural anthropologists go native, they find themselves being, like, overwhelmed with this stuff. Describe what you mean by native. Like they live in there as one of them. When they when – they, like, you can Google that, that stuff. There's – I've been keeping Evernote files of this for a decade plus. But the West has created buffered selves. You know, we've got basically we walk around with AirPods on and we're just we can't interpret reality, the world. We have buffered selves. Mm-hmm. And we we've curved in on ourselves and so much so that I think mental health and this is this is Beck's argument in Honey Magic Ills. Wherever secularism is on the rise, um, you can argue if it's correlation or causation, but wherever secularism is on the rise, mental health problems also go high. So that, you know, there there is a sense in which the more buffered the self, the more, like, everything depends on you. And I, I think, and, as I remember Dr. Beck's argument, and for those who aren't familiar with him, he is a psychologist. But the way I understood what he was writing there is that mental health becomes a catch-all for other... The ache of God. Yeah, for the ache of God. And so we use that in the same way, um, you know, after there's a school shooting, which, you know, happened just yesterday uh, as we're recording this um, on on Wednesday, uh, there was a school shooting here in Texas. And what we talk about is like, this is a mentally ill person. And you go, but... Like there are a lot of mentally ill people who don't shoot each other in some ways, like that reflects the way that mental illness has become like this junk drawer that we just throw a bunch of stuff into because we don't have vocabulary for anything other than that in a disenchanted world. That's that's right. And and also in other stuff that Richard's done, you know, in a disenchanted world, um, (coughs) we demonize people. So if you're the political opposition is not just, you know wrong about ideas they're evil <coughs> and um you know like so 
the here here are the things that I would say stand out to me as I've kind of completed this pod this season of the podcast. One, almost everybody who has deconverted had a view of the Bible that was not sustainable or uh, and not what Christians have really seen it to be throughout the centuries. Okay, what is give me an example of an unsustainable view of the Bible. Um well that okay. So when when Christians talk about the Bible as the word of God, we are not talking about it the way Islam talks about the Quran. Um, because for Islam, like the sacred miracle is the Quran, the like Quran, it, it's creation. Right. Whereas for Christianity, what is our sacred miracle? The, the greatest revelation is Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and the Bible is holy literature in that it bears witness to Jesus Christ. I think the Gospels and the New Testament um, bear accurate witness to the historical Messiah and the, the Hebrew Scriptures bear witness to the coming of the Messiah and the formation of the people of the Messiah. But the Bible is not some idol to be worshipped. It is, it, is, um, it is sacred literature. God speaks through the Bible. The Bible can be trusted. Um, I have no tricks up my sleeve when it comes to this, but the eighth-grade version of it. And so I find myself in the podcast saying things that are jarring, like, listen— the Bible is not the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God. And I, I mean, the Bible is the Word of God, but it's not the living Word of God. So I'm trying to like... You're, you're echoing John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word right, was with God, right. the Word was God. You're quoting the Bible to define what the Bible is and what Jesus is, which is two different things. So if you give them a, a definition of the Bible, um, like that is inerrant, for example, that's a word that the Bible never uses... And, Church history uh, doesn't we, use until very recently. Uh, until science. Yeah. And so when people come at me and ask me, is the Bible inerrant? I say it's way more than that. Because the only way you ask that question is if you've already answered another question. Which is? Is science, is science the only arbiter of absolute truth? And you've said yes, and therefore the Bible must bear witness to that kind of thing. Hmm. And like... Um, so what I saw over and over again, because the people that I was interviewing were like Bible majors and youth ministers and, and more than one youth minister and missionaries in Africa who left the faith, and they would say over and over again, it was because they started learning about the Bible. And these are not from like liberal universities. This is like Harding. They're learning the, the history of the Bible, and it doesn't stand up to the kind of nonsense that, that's – disrespectful way of saying it but the last hundred years of fundamentalism has like you know reacted to some some bad stuff that needed to be corrected but we reacted to it with the shadow side of no the bible is a genesis one is a scientific textbook and all that so i would say that's one thing yeah that i found myself like trying to help and it, it, it helped me with like discipling my own kids Like, I'm letting them know the most important thing God has done in human history is become a human being, and there's nothing even close. Yeah. And the Bible can be trusted because it bears witness. It's not wrong. It's not lying. It's God-breathed. It's God-inspired. All those words, I believe. You know, I believe it's infallible for what it's trying to do, which is just a fancy way of saying I believe it's trustworthy. And when the Bible is 
when I disagree with the Bible, I assume that I'm wrong and it's right. Yeah. Like I stand under the Bible, not over it. But but what you're I stand up. Yeah, but yeah. you're separating yourself from external claims that Christianity has. Some parts of Christianity have willingly gone into, even though they don't realize that when you play this game, you're going to lose. Like it's not a game. It's, it's cultural accommodation. Yeah. And it's cultural accommodation to modernity. Yeah. And so like it, it's. It's, I'm seeing it as a source of all kinds of people losing their faith and not losing their faith for good reasons. That's what's frustrating. And that's like, what you're talking about, like what you're saying, like the eighth grade understanding of... Yeah, that's right. It, that's right. There's there's more out there like that you can learn for this. Now, of course, there are better reasons to lose your faith than a claim like this, what I hear like you saying. Like probability. I get it. If you, if you make a, you know... If you've studied probability, I understand, like, okay. I would also argue the fine-tuning of the universe argument there. but um, And then the second thing is, and this is almost universal and so confusing, and you're going to make fun of me for being a Calvinist here, but they have a high view of human nature. Uh-oh. That you hate that. I, <laughs> you hate that. <laughs> I just – it's the one thing we – the church has so much things that we have to say, like, you have to have faith. But we don't have to ha- say, hey, I have to have faith in this. You have to s- just say, like, um... Look around. Look, Yeah, like, it feels to me like saying human beings are basically good is like saying the Internet is basically good. I mean, people are listening to this because of the Internet. Oh, crap. Oh, cool. You... Okay, here's a great thing that just happened. Jonathan just said the Internet is good, and then my Internet signal just went down. And I don't know if we just lost the rest of the podcast. This is absolutely hilarious. You've got to be kidding me. <sighs> Did you do you know what just happened there, uh-huh. Jonathan? What happened? You said you made a <laughs> statement about the internet being good and it shut down. Like, that has never happened before. I've done tons of episodes, and it's never just shut down. You say Open that. Open take. Open take. You s- Principalities and powers. You say that, and we probably lost, like, the last 10 minutes of the conversation, because that's how... You think so, really? I think we could have lost some of it, but we'll see. We'll see at the very end. Okay. Let's finish this, though. But okay. you... Okay. Depravity, human depravity. You think that is one thing that is unimpeachable if you look around and go... But how does that help people understand... God, how could how come that's not just a oh well people are fallible and Christianity is passed down through people and so these fallible people could be prop, propping up something that is disordered? Sure, yeah, sure. I, I mean, okay, that's your argument, but that's almost never the argument. The argument tends to be the argument of progress, which is uh, you know human beings are basically we're slowly getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, the argument of progress is is basically the argument for human perfectibility. It's like I can't tell you how many times the uh, Homeo um, De- Deus book uh, you've all oh man oh the yeah. um, a brief history it keeps coming up of tomorrow yeah um, and it's so funny because it's like we we have con- now that we have conquered plague and war and famine the three and it's like. Who's conquered that? Yeah. Like he wrote it in 2019. It's like, well, that's kind of bad timing. But <laughs> uh, and it's all, but also this this kind of like um, myth about human beings cooperating. 
I've, I found myself saying it more than one occasion, like, we can't even get people to wear masks during, if it, like, would save other people's life. Um, because I, I, it's human human nature, and so you find you find all these kind of, like, secular humanists who I like if you're a secular humanist. I'm glad you share my values. You just might not realize where it comes from. But... It's why you're a secular humanist is like shocked at Ukraine being invaded by Russia in 2022. Yeah, how are we still having like, war well, right now? Yeah, right. Well, because what do you think the world is? Mm-hmm. Hmm. It's it's full of you know greed and ambition and yeah, human selfish. nature, right? And so a lot of that <clears throat> I found to be uh, that is that is a huge faith commitment that is often overlooked by nuns. Okay. Um, Okay, so we've got uh, how many episodes you're gonna have in this first season, Jonathan? Um, I think ten. Okay, so we're gonna get ten episodes out. You got a couple. To cl- I'm trying to drop it in the summer so we can. Okay. Have it to drive. People can have it to drive. Oh, that's thoughtful. That's thoughtful. Um, Jonathan, I'm glad you're doing this. Uh, after hearing some of the conversations already, uh, I'm excited for you to do this. I'm grateful that uh, people get to hear this. Um, it is called Bonafides and. Hopefully it's going to, like the first episode, we'll drop the week after this one comes out. Isn't it the plan? That's right. All right. Well, uh, we'll, uh, we'll hope everyone goes and checks it out. Jonathan, it's a pleasure as always. I don't know how much we lost of that after you said something disparaging about the internet and it literally shuts down as you say that. That is, um, that's demonic. Yeah, it's demonic. It is demonic. Yeah. Like a lot of times I've been on this podcast, I've felt that kind of... (laughs) Why do you got to be that way, man? Seriously, why do you got to be that way? Thanks for thanks for helping me get the word out about this. Of course, man. Of course. All right, y'all go check it out. See you guys.